Well, it's week eight. Yeah, we're getting there. We've covered a lot of ground. We started week one with the city in which we live, and week eight is about the heavenly city in which we're going to live. So this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about the gospel and heaven, or the gospel and eternity. Eighty-seven percent of Americans say they believe in heaven. Now, fewer than that believe in hell, of course. But 87% believe in heaven. In the late 90s, U.S. News and World Report reported that 18 million Americans believe that they have had a near-death experience that gave them a glimpse of the afterlife. That's, I thought that was a lot. 18 million Americans would say, yeah, I've had a near-death experience, and I had an experience or connection somehow with the afterlife in that, and so I totally believe in it. Right? There's this one lady, um, Diane um, Morsey, that told Barbara Walters in a special she did in 2005 that she almost died she, when she was electrocuted. She saw a white light and she said this, My near-death experience changed everything about me. There is not a single experience on earth that could ever be as good as being dead. <laughs> Which is consistent with Christian doctrine, but it's kind of an interesting quote. Um, and... If, if, you, if you've noticed, also there was a book that came out at the very beginning of the year called Heaven is for Real. Some of you have probably read it. I, still, I have, still haven't read the book. Um, it is a book about a little boy who, I think when he was four, he had, an, um, he had his appendix burst. He went into surgery. He had kind of this near-death experience. And over the course of several months after that, he would talk to his parents and just say things he shouldn't have really known. And they were like, where did you find that out? And he's like, oh, you know, when I was dead, you know. And so he ended up writing a book about all these conversations. And um, as of this last—that's the book. As of this last week in November, so for 50 weeks now, it's been on the top of the Times bestseller list. And the thing that I like because I'm an Apple hater is that it's ahead of the Steve Jobs biography. <laughs> so, yeah. So heaven and surreal is beaten out. Steve Jobs and that stock's only going to go down. So, not the company. I mean just the book. Um, so one of the things I think is really um, important to recognize is that even for people who wouldn't necessarily say they even believe in God, um, the vast majority of people, in fact, um, the number of Americans who are non-religious is 16%, right? So there's obviously a number of non-religious, and like there's like 4% atheists, so there's a number of non-religious people who said yes to the do you believe in heaven question, right? So... People, whether they think about it very, very much, believe in heaven. And if you attack their view of heaven, sometimes they'll get a little frustrated, they'll get a little upset at you. But people tend to have very vague notions of heaven. And if you get specific about it, they get upset at you. It's like people kind of want a relatively vague, nice, it's going to be nice, most people are going to go there unless you're terrible, afterlife kind of notion of heaven, but they don't want to get specific about it. Um, but they also don't want to get too negative about it. They don't want to not believe in it. They want to believe in it, but they don't want to get too specific about it, which is a little odd. But it's, it's virtually universal. Um, but for, when, when Christians think about it, when we think about this biblically in relationship to God, what we need to recognize is that what eternity is, what heaven is meant to be like, is basically the gospel fully realized. I mean, it, heaven has everything to do with the gospel. 
It is part of the good news of Jesus Christ, and I suspect that when we stop doubting heaven, we will believe it is the best part for us, in a way, of the message of Jesus. Right? It's, salvation is not just coming out of the negative or escaping the wrath of God. It is coming into the full blessing and favor of God, which is just as good as the wrath of God is bad. And it's much longer than anything else we're going to experience. And I think if we really believed in heaven, we wouldn't feel ashamed to go, yeah, heaven's the best part of the whole gig. And you can say that because God's in heaven and he's the best part of heaven. So when you say heaven's the best part, you're not saying God isn't the best part because he's the best part of heaven. He's in there. You got that? Yeah, so it's the best part, right? So the restoration of all things, heaven is, or the eternal city will be the restoration of all things that have been under the curse. But not even just that, because that's actually the restoration of all things that have been under the curse and nothing more than that is actually what, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. But that's not what we believe. We believe that there will be a restoration of all things under the curse and then an immense amplification of creation to the point where John could say heaven and earth, as we know them, had basically passed away. And there was a new heaven and a new earth. Similarities, but the amplification beyond our imagination so that there are some things that are part of the restoration that will say, oh, I remember when it was like that and now it's like this. But for a lot of it, it will be, oh, I never imagined this and couldn't have. The, the Christian doctrine of heaven, therefore, is the reversal of the curse and the recreation of all things in the full presence and glory of God. And that's the best part in the full presence and glory of God. And if you go through the last eight weeks, basically, right, it's it, he, the eternal city, the heaven, eternity. It is the place in which, remember week two? The heart? It's where the heart will be fully renewed. All of our loves will be on the right things. We will love all the right things in all the right ways, in all the right proportions. Our heart will not be torn anymore. Or confused anymore. I mean, imagine that. Imagine having all the right feelings all the time. That would be amazing, right? Or week three about idolatry. That idolatry, having all the wrong loves and giving our devotion to all the wrong, will be gone forever. That the restoration of community will be complete. That all the stuff that's between us, all the things that are wrong and the way we know each other and love each other and serve each other or don't do those things, that's all going to be gone. The, the, the inner relationship of beings, not just between us and God, which it will be between us and God, but between us and everybody else will be restored the way it, way it was always meant to be and better and amplified. The, the ingathering will be complete. Which is both good news and bad news, right? But it's good news too. It's not just bad news. And the work and purpose will be restored. The, the, this whole sense like you go to work and there's some parts about it that are good and some parts that you hate, right? Don't you feel that way? Like I'm a pastor. You might think that I love my whole job. That's not true. Okay? That's not true. And most people who, who love their work, they don't, they don't love all of it or they're the boss and they just have lots of minions. I don't know what to tell you. But most people, if you ask them how they feel about their work, they like a percentage of it. And for some people, that's a high percentage. And for some people, that's a very low percentage. I usually say 60-40 for me. And I have a pretty good job. I'm doing exactly what I want to do, but still, you know, there's a lot of it I don't really care for. I'm not planting a lot of seeds that don't grow. 
but in heaven, work. Everything we put ourselves to, everything we put our being to, is full of purpose. It's the right thing. There's this sense of the right place at the right time. It's, it's, it's restored and amplified. And the same thing with justice and peace. It is a place of bliss, which sounds kind of like a weird word. We don't really use the word bliss, but you know what bliss means? Bliss means the absolute freedom from anxiety. That's what it means. That's all it means. It just means we're not anxious about anything anymore. Nothing gets under our skin, which for most of us, we've got to take some pretty serious drugs to get there right now. (laughs) It's just a fact. That's why drugs are so popular, right? That's why they're so popular, because you cannot find bliss under the curse, unless you curse yourself deeper for a little while. You can sell later for a little bit now, or you can have faith now and experience a lot later. Not that drug users can't go to heaven. I bet, I bet there's going to be a lot more drug users in heaven than religious people, right? It's a little scary, but it could be true. So if that's true, if heaven or eternity is a recreation of much, and the recreation is much more than just even a full restoration, that it's the restoration, but it's the amplification. If, the be- if, if some of the best parts are the most unimaginable—listen, one of the things we need to recognize is one of the words that we gloss over because they're religious words that we can't explain are going to be the best parts, okay? We say—all right, we use the English words. We say, glory of God, right? We say that, you know, in heaven, there's going to be the presence of God. There's going to be the glory of God. And the best thing that John can say about what that's like is, he's like, you know, you know the sun— yeah, it's going to be kind of obsolete in heaven. It might, there might be one. There might be five. Who knows? But there's—it doesn't matter. Because the radiance of the glory of God, just in terms of light, somehow fills everything. Walls don't even stop it. It's everywhere. It's like there's this—there's this luminescence to everything that— I don't know how to explain. I just can say you don't need sons anymore. And all he's getting at is this tiny little sliver of the whole pie of the glory of God. That's the the things that we—the splendor, the majesty of God, the glory—we were like, oh, that's a nice religious word. I don't know what that means. Can you move on because I'm already bored? Those are the best parts. They're the best parts. And it's—they're just too unimaginable at the moment. And so we're kind of like, okay, so it's going to be a nice place. Sounds good. Gold streets. All right. It's a little—well, I guess there's going to be granite countertops too then. Hmm. (laughs) Okay, so so here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about why we don't really believe in heaven. That's what I want to talk about, okay? Why is it— our problem is not— that the cons- biblical conception of heaven lacks relevance, okay? The biblical concept, the reason people don't believe specifically in the gospel in the hev- and in the heaven that the gospel preaches is not because heaven is not relevant, okay? We are a dying people. We are a hurting people. We are an anxious people. Everything that heaven promises is everything that we need. There is no relevance problem w- with heaven. So the reason people don't rejoice in it and drive around ridiculously happy is, be- is not because the promises are good enough. It's because they don't believe it. The reason why you didn't wake up this morning thinking about the fact that God has promised a t- 
eternity, heaven, to all who believe is because on a very deep level, we don't believe what? Same thing every week, right? Is because we don't believe the gospel. We don't believe the gospel. We, Jesus believers, gospel, we don't believe the gospel because if we believed the gospel, it wouldn't seem odd to us that the God who would give us his one and only son would graciously give us all things. And what are all things to an infinitely powerful being? Well, kind of probably a nice eventuality. If we, you see, if you believe the gospel, there's nothing intellectually or skeptically problematic about the doctrine of heaven. Which means, by inverse logic, if we don't believe in, if we're not moved by the reality of the doctrine of heaven, then we, we don't really believe the gospel or in the God of the gospel. Does that make sense? So I want to I talk about why I think, and I, I want to phrase this mostly in terms of why we don't believe it, but I think we don't believe it for the same reason our secular neighbors don't believe it. I think we just feel silently ashamed. It's dull to us. If you ask us, do you believe in heaven? We go, yeah, I believe in heaven. And if I said, well, does that do anything for you? You might go, eh, sometimes. But see, that's coming from the same thing, I think, as the people who go, I don't, I, that's stupid. Religious people, that's stupid. It's, it's coming from the same place. The reason we have a dull sensation of us not doing anything for us is the same thing our skeptical friends are just mad about. Does that make sense? So here's, I think people find it hard to believe. I think at best it seems like a dream, and at worst it can feel like a scam. People feel like this is all just too good to be true. It's this sort of pie-in-the-sky mentality. And I think that there's two basic things that they're concerned about. I think that there's a they feel like there's a philosophical danger in that to believe in truth something that's actually false. That it's sort of this naive runaway optimism. Why would you think that something like heaven is really going to happen? Why think something as extravagant as, as heaven would be any, of any interest to God? Why would you think that someone who creates an earth like this would at the end of time create a city like that? And then secondly, there's what you might call the moral danger, the psychological danger, and that is that, listen, um, there's, there's a lot of people who think that believing too much in heaven is actually dangerous. It's a problem. Because if people believe too much in heaven, that it has this anesthetizing effect on people. So that either they go, oh, things are going to turn out for everybody else, so I'll just do my own thing. Or, well, there's all this oppression stuff in my own life, whatever, but, you know, I, you know, heaven's coming, and Things aren't so bad, and it, it, like, anesthetizes people so they don't act fully in real life. They don't realize their own, their own lives, and I want to talk about those two things. So I want to say first, um, is, is heaven true? Is it worth believing? Is it, is it philosophically warranted to believe in heaven? And then secondly, um, does it create bad behavior or doesn't it? And then why is it integral to the gospel? So let's do that in rapid succession. So first, is it true? And for those of you who are thinking this through more technically, it's, is, is, is believing in heaven, is philosophical skepticism about heaven really warranted? Um, and so f I think, I, so I want to make sort of three points on this one. And, and the first is, um, well, okay, let me set it up a little bit first. Um, I think that there is a very strong temptation to believe that heaven could be true or false, and that if it's true, that'll be great. And if it's false, well, it's of some use as a myth. And so we'll just see what happens. And so there's a song by Derek Webb that I like um, where, he's, where the, the line he wrote is, Sometimes I think maybe it's all just a game that our friends and families play too, to harness the young and bring some comfort to the old. Right? 
Heaven could be useful. Give some comfort to the old. You know, they're going to die, but hey, you're going to go to heaven. Or the young, you'd be like, hey, you're probably going to want to go to heaven. And to try to harness them and, you know, it's a useful myth. Um, so let me give three, try to give three answers to that. The first is, is that um, heaven, heaven skepticism misses the point that creation is already amazing. Okay, creation's already amazing. Um, you know, people go, you know, think of the heavenly picture, heavenly, oh, gold streets and pearls for doors, and I mean, that all sounds really, really cool. You know, thousand and a half mile long city, cubically, and that's all, um, that's all pretty, pretty amazing, but it's kind of, it's sort of, well, it's really not that big a deal, in one sense, because, um, The world God created here isn't, is much more amazing than we actually have capacity to realize. Because we're so dull about the world in which we live in, because our experience of the planet we live on is so narrow, we think, we tend to think of the whole world in terms of what we did this week. So Kevin is really big compared to my house, my street, driving over to this church and going over to cops and driving over to, but, you know, some, some of us, if you start putting things there, like, I've been on a calm sea at sunset in the Gulf of Mexico. And I've seen that. And, and I've, I've come out of a tent at 5 a.m. when the sun was rising over the Rockies. And I've been in 100 feet of water with a 10-foot-across stingray and a 650-pound Goliath grouper. And I've, I've swam in a school of 50,000 menhaden all around me shining in different colors. And, and, mo- and many of you here have had m- many more experiences than me. And, and the fact is, is that though there's a lot of things that are ugly in this world, there, this is an amazing world. In fact, if, even if you look at like, just think about what people use as screensavers, right? Okay, yeah, there's a lot of pornographic screensavers, but even more popular than those, and those are popular, are nature and things from the world. Pictures and animals and landscapes and Sunsets and tropical places we wish we could go in January. I mean, there's just—people uh, are—and they put it on their screen because the man-made junk in their office doesn't inspire them. But a digital recreation of a little piece of the creation that is here, even under thousands of years of curse and human degradation, is still imagination-capturingly beautiful. And that's just this planet. I mean, the, the fact is, is that um, the best we can figure out, the universe in which we live is 150 billion trillion. It was a little bit like this guy saying how many boxes it would take in his room. Billion trillion miles across. Okay, that's, that's sort of a long way. You know, that we, call, we call numbers like that ridiculously inconceivable. It's a number so big that you can't even make any sense out of it, right? That's just this creation. That's just right now. Right? And, and that's, and listen, all the stars we see, that's 5%. Right? 95% is, is either dark matter or dark energy. We can't even see that stuff. And there's all kinds of hypothetical things we can't see. I mean, just, just the stars, just what we can see with our naked eye— is more than we can even get into our heads, and that's a ridiculously—that that proportion is ridiculously under 1% of what's out there. I mean, 
we probably ought to, our problem is probably not that heaven is too astounding. Our problem might be that we're not nearly astounded enough with what's already here. <laughs> that, and we may not really have in our heads what omnipotence, omnipower really means. And if, and if your frustration is with the contrast, well, I don't think the size is that big a contrast. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about this, I'm going to skip a couple things, is that, see that little galaxy there? It's called the Andromeda Galaxy. It's the um, furthest away galaxy that you can see with the naked eye. It looks a little bit like this. It's considered a neighbor of ours in the, uh, in our, in our galaxy. And, um, the light, if you went out tonight with a telescope and looked at the Andromeda Galaxy, the light that you would see had, would have been coming to your eye for two million years. And light moves rather rapidly. I mean, just to get the sense of the universe, the, the, this creation, the, the unrestored, unrecreated creation. I, I mean, you've got to let that expand your imagination a little bit. And I don't think you can, you can skeptically have it both ways. That you can say, the universe is so astoundingly large, and therefore we so dramatically insignificant that how could you believe in a God, you know, even exists? And say, heaven is somehow too big and too grand. And too, you can't have it both ways. If you believe we are so insignificant in an enormous universe that there couldn't be a God, you have to at least grant that if a God, ex- if God does exist, that him creating an enormously incredible heaven isn't that far-fetched. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying you can't have it both ways. Let's move on. Oh, wait, let me, let me show you this. Um, this is part of a recreation of a group of international scientists. This was published in the New York Times um, of what the, how the universe is, its inner structure is shaped. This is three mouse brain cells. Mouse, yeah. Now, sci- like scientifically, like evolutionarily speaking, these are not similar physical processes. They're not. They're not similar physical processes. They're totally different. One is biologically driven, the other is driven by gravity and physics and so on. But yet, the inner structures are remarkably similar. Which nobody wants to comment on what that could possibly mean, but it could possibly mean something. And part of what it could possibly mean is, is that the intricacies, not just in the macro level, but on the micro level of the nature of how our universe functions, has some teleological principle behind it. It has some, some logic to it, some beauty to it, some, and, and maybe that is just that there happens to be some math, mathematical principle that creates this stuff. Or it could be that it was created with a mathematical principle in it that creates this stuff. But there is a grandeur and in, in an interest and a function and a, this creation is pretty amazing, even under the curse. So don't, I mean, is the contrast really that bad? First of all. Secondly is um, that skepticism about heaven is to miss the gospel. Skepticism about heaven is cynicism about God. Right? And one of the reasons why this is important is, is that um, you will always have a difficult time believing in the doctrine of heaven if you do not believe in the doctrine of the curse. You'll always think that. Because you'll think that God made a trash heap here and why would he treat us better later on? That's what you'll think. 
And so the whole idea that there will be a heaven that's going to be great doesn't make any sense because you'll be like, well, this is kind of, this place isn't that great. Well, this place is less than heaven, but the not greatness part of it, Scripture teaches on, in many, many places, is the result of the curse that came because of sin, which is the thing that the whole world, including all of humanity, is groaning under until the redemption of our bodies, it says in Romans 8. And so if, if you think that the doctrine of the curse is some kind of quaint little notion that ancient prehistoric people came up with because they couldn't understand when things went wrong— then it's, it's only natural later on you're going to say, well, this whole heaven thing's a little weird because why didn't God make a better world? But if you take seriously that God says all of this creation, including all of humanity, exists under a, a, deg, um, a, a, a degrading kind of curse that has come upon us because of our own sin, then it, the whole idea that God would redeem us out of this makes perfect sense. If you don't believe in the curse, you, it, it's very difficult logically to work out what— and so it's important to recognize that because it's very easy without really thinking about it to kind of feel like, oh, the curse, that's kind of one of those doctrines that's sort of—and eh, then not realize what it's going to do to all these other doctrines, all these other beliefs about who, what God is like, how good God is, whether or not he really loves you. All those things are partly based on the logic of redemption. The logic of redemption is dependent on the fact of the curse. Let me preach this part this way. Romans 8, 19-32. The creation awaits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That is, the final judgment in revelation of heaven, right? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up till the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our, for our adoption as sons, the redemptions of our eyes. Do you see what he's saying? What he's saying is, what, what we're experiencing now, Christianly speaking, is not very significant an experience. Do you see what he's arguing? He, he, it's like the first three cherries that fall from the tree. That's what we've got right now. It's very—and so we are frustrated by that. Are you frustrated by how remote God seems? You should be. A theologically well-integrated, biblical, gospel-believing Christian should be deeply frustrated at the felt absence of God in our life. And also encouraged by the first fruit presence of God in our life. Because it's—we are in the same situation as creation. Though— Saved and prepared for redemption, we remain under the curse, all of us, just like the creation, right? 24, 4, in this hope we were saved. In this hope. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait for it patiently, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness— we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Right? That's life under the curse with the Holy Spirit. You can't even figure out how to pray. 
But the Holy Spirit has to help you. Why? Because we have a difficult time with the fell absence of God and the presence of the curse and all the things we're living in right now with creation itself still groaning under that. Right? And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for, for the saints in accordance with God's will. We, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn, meaning the Son be the firstborn, among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's the work God is doing right now, still under the curse. That's why we're still under the curse. Because he's doing that work right now. And then he says this, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now think about that last verse. In relationship to this point. How, how, how can we think that? You see what he's saying? How, how can you think? How can you think that the God who would come into the world under the curse to a really ugly race of creatures and redeem through his own death, why would you think there's a limit to his graciousness? Why would you think that? Why would you think that the one who could create the maximally perfect world. Why, why would you think the one who could, who could create innumerable pleasures and blessings and hopes and give them all to you, why would you think he wouldn't do that? You see, it, it only works if you don't believe in the curse. If you're angry at God that you're still under it. If you're frustrated at him that he hasn't given it all to you yet. If you don't like the fact that he's still doing the work of calling and regenerating and saving and preparing to glorify people all through the human race so that he can redeem them to the final city. If you're, if you're angry about that, that you still have to deal with the curse, then of course you're going to be mad at God. But if, if you recognize that you're, we're all here for a purpose right now, and ultimately he is going to glorify us, that Jesus is going to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that is, we are going to legitimately resemble the Savior— and that is going to happen. And we are going to be not just, not just, we're not just going to endure. We are going to be, it says, glorified with him. That would be blasphemy if it wasn't in the Bible. And then Paul just goes, guys, why, why do we think? Why do we blush at the doctrine of heaven? Why do we let people make, make us feel ashamed about it? Why do, we let, why do we let our own hearts, our own skepticism, or our neighbors make us feel like somehow we're being mean or unequal or unfair or something because we believe that the gracious one who has everything is loving enough and gracious enough and merciful enough and, and that he desires to give us all those things when he told us he did. Why not just—why not believe him? And then lastly on this is that heaven skepticism um, can be an emotional response, not a clear thought. Well, you know, most of us, our, our, our felt skepticism about heaven is just that. It's a feeling. We—you know, it presents itself in our minds as rigorous logic, but it's not rigorous logic. It's not. We are in pain— Right now, you are torn between what you were created to be and what you are. 
Most of you have some kind of physical pain or anxiety or disappointment. You have clinical psychological issues that we've been building up for years. We are not whole. And we are therefore not in sync with reality and not in sync with what we were meant to be. And the result of that is we're torn inside. And what that is going to create in us is a frustration, is a skepticism that things could be whole. Right? You know, why is it that people who get married, when both people are out of a family that didn't get a divorce, why are they more likely not to get a divorce? Why is that? Right? Because they saw their parents bicker and fight oh, and come home. I mean, they, they have hope that, that that era in their parents' life that was really bad, that's kind of like theirs right now, they, it wasn't like that a few years after that. Things changed. They saw it. They know. They, 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 but if, if, you're from, if you're from a family that didn't, then you never saw that. You, you, you live in a reality in which— And so it's, much, it's not that it can't be done. It's just harder. It's just harder. And you see, it's similar in relationship to, it's in relationship to heaven. We are— It's, it's very difficult for us to accept the unblushing promises because when you're under a curse, blessing sounds silly, right? When you're under an experience of degradation, restoration doesn't sound possible. When you're experiencing oppression, the idea that there's going to be justice doesn't make a lot of sense. And when your whole life is toiled, the idea that there is going to be blissful rest isn't very compelling. But remember, that's not logic. That's emotion, and we, we can get very self-righteous about how logical and reasonable we are in our objections about heaven. But friends, let me just tell you, the state of human beings, what it means to be a human right now is to be in an emotional place where you, by necessity, will be skeptical of heaven on the basis of your experience. You will always fight against that because you've never been there. There's this, there's this, um, place in the silver chair, one of the Narnia Chronicles, um, where um, Prince really, you know, the, these two children and this, this like frog man named Puluglum have gone into the underworld basically to look for Prince Rillian, who's this lost prince. And they finally find him. And he's been for years under the spell of the, the Emerald Witch. And so they're all trying to get out of there. And the Emerald Witch um, creates this, this sort of like spell and she's trying to convince them that they're just, they're crazy. And um, so, so there's this like magic in the air and they're all kind of coming into this sleep and they're trying to fight this spell and the Emerald Witch is like playing this really soft music and she has this really sweet voice and they, and they say, one of them says, no, there is an overworld because I have seen the sun. And the witch says, oh really, you've seen the sun? That sounds very nice. What is this? That, what do you mean by sun? And he says, well, it's, do you see that lamp over there? It's like a lamp, but much bigger, and it's hung in the sky. And, and well, what is, how is it hung in the sky? That's very odd. And then, you see, you can't even explain the most elementary ideas about this thing you call sun. Isn't it, isn't it much more likely that you've seen a lamp, and you wanted there to be a bigger and greater lamp, and so you imagined a sun? And then it says that Jill, the little girl, thought when she was done, oh yes, that makes very good sense. And then one of the other characters said, no, but there is Aslan, like the lion, right? And she says, oh, what is this thing you call a lion, right? And he goes through the same thing again. They're like, well, it's like a cat. Do you know what a cat is? Well, yes, I love cats. Well, it's like a cat, except bigger, but with a mane, but not like a horse's mane. It's more like a judge's wig. And, it's, and, they kinda, and she goes, really? Hmm. 
you know? Well, now I've seen a cat, and aren't, are you sure you didn't see a cat and imagine a bigger, and you see, and then they go, oh yeah. Until Puglum finally, like, stomps on the fire, and the stench of his burning flesh wakes them all up. And one of the things you, you, you've got to realize is you just switch this logic around a little bit and it just, it sounds like the Emerald Witch. Well, d- didn't you just, surely you just imagined that. You saw a, d- a difficult world and you saw some nice things in it from time to time and you just imagined a place with more peace, with, with a God in it, whatever that means. Don't you see? Isn't it much more likely that you experienced some joy and you wanted more of it? Isn't it much more likely in... And if you've been underground long enough, that sounds reasonable. And we've been underground, friends. Listen, listen to me. We've been underground all our lives. Don't underestimate the place of emotion and the human condition in your logical skepticism in your mind about whether or not heaven exists. Don't underestimate that. Or you'll think it's just, you're just more reasonable than those silly religious people or whatever. Okay, lastly and quickly, um, is heaven even a good motivation? Um, there's this sort of practical objection that, it's, it's the old Karl Marx objection, right? That religion is the opiate of the masses or it anesthetizes people from real living. Now, for some people, that, that's like a social justice gig. Like, people won't stand up to oppression. But for other people, and what's much more common is people won't live bohemianly enough. Like, it'll, it'll have, the idea of heaven will make you live morally or whatever, which will make you morally constricted and you won't be able to make the choices you need to be free and happy. So there's kind of a, like, self-focused fear. And also there is the social ideal issue. Um, but he, but there's a there's a couple a couple issues with this. Um, I'd love to say more about this, but I'm not going to be able. To, the, the one is um, w- what I feel like is sort of the atheist inconsistency on this, and that is this: I don't think you can have it both ways. That religion makes people passive, and the problem with religion is it's created long and enduring wars in the world that people fought and fought and fought and fought and would never give up. Can, you see. I have a problem with that. You can argue either that the problem with the world is religion because it makes people angry and that they fight wars that go on and on and on and on. But that means that religion motivates people. Or you can argue religion anesthetizes people. But it's, it's very hard to argue. It's, it's, you're trying to have it both ways, and that just means that you're, you're probably arguing that way because you just want to. Because it's, in, it's hypocritical to argue both sides of that. And, and what, what I think is much more likely the case is that um, is that the idea of heaven is actually exactly the kind of motivation that people need. Exactly the kind of motivation that people need. If, there's, if it's warranted to believe that it's true. If, if I believe if, if something's false, we shouldn't believe in it. But if point one is that it's warranted to believe in it, I think that it's exactly the kind of motivation we should need. Because you basically got three options. There's the no heaven option. But um, I don't think that that's going to really motivate people in the kind of ways we want people motivated. I think there's just as much moral hazard to that as anything. And I would just submit as Exhibit A, the history of atheism, atheistic regimes in the 20th century, and how many millions and millions and millions and millions of people they've killed. Frankly. Um, 
It, it does not, um, it, it, you see, if there's no heaven, are you going to risk anything to bring about the end of oppression or some good? Why would you risk anything? Right? It, it, the idea that there's no heaven would make everybody more risk-averse. When people are risk-averse, they don't stand up against things that are going wrong on the macro level. Things go wrong on the macro level, and everybody gets oppressed. That's how it happens. It creates a group of people who are too self-interested, and it's not helpful. I don't think the, I don't think the idea that there's no heaven is going to motivate people. I think it's going to motivate people much worse than even a bad conception of a legalistic religion that believes in heaven. The second is, is that you can make heaven— you can make heaven— that we can create it in our world. But that's just going to make—that's going to do usually one of two things. It's going to make people realize that it's much more likely that they can make a personal heaven than that we're ever going to achieve a corporate heaven. And you, st you still tend to get more self-interested actions anyway. And worse, even worse than that is that if you really believe that your only hope for heaven is to make it in this world, the, the result of that will almost always be ideology over humanity. You will, you will, you will never— and being surprised at what we are willing to do to each other to bring about the good world. I mean, they, they say that um, in the food programs of early communist China, they came to Mao three times. And they said, we've done the, we've done the land distribution food issues this long. This many people have starved to death. And he said, he said we need to press forward towards the goal. And they came back and they said, now, now 12 million people have starved to death trying to bring about the great society. What should we do? And he said, we need to press forward to the goal. Why? Because if you, if you believe it's the only hope, then you will sacrifice now for later. But what happens is later never happens. And we have we've traded in the humanity people in the present. And that happens a lot and if people really believe that that is what, that's the greatest hope that we have, there's nothing we are unwilling to do to each other. And I think history makes that very, very evident. And so therefore, I think that the third option is the best, is that is to have a group of people with an allegiance to heaven. There is one. And so they are fiercely loyal to its king and to its purposes and to its values and what it stands for. And so they do good in the earth. And, the, and they're willing to risk. But they don't confuse now with heaven. And so they're willing to sacrifice. They're, they're pledged to reality. They have one life to live for the purposes of heaven. Having an allegiance to heaven, I think, is the best motivation that people can have. I'm going to skip a whole lot. I really, I would, okay, I would really encourage you to read Hebrews 11 this afternoon. The whole logic of it is that what brought, what caused people to do courageous things is they were looking for a citizenship in a different city. And that that ends up being the motivation for the first verses of Hebrews 12 that says, let's live for God. So, let's end with this. Why, why are the promises so worthwhile? Why is it worthwhile to believe wholeheartedly in heaven? That it is the realization of the gospel. That it is the gospel fully realized. And it— I think it is, I think it is the deepest longing of our hearts. The thing that we really long for, it is. I think that it is practically just the kind of motivation that we need, which I'd love to have talked much more clearly about that and more. And, and I think it's just what we would expect 
from the God of the Bible. And I think that it's also, and I think this is the, heart, the strongest reason, it is the express promise of his word. But I think that even better than all these, um, I think we need to remember to connect this to the gospel is that there was one that was willing to endure the loss of eternity's goods and blessings and was so driven and passionate um, to lose them in order to give them to all who would believe. I think that's the most comforting thing. And I think the strongest thing for why we should believe that there was one that promised blessing through suffering the curse. There was one who promised justice and died under injustice and oppression. There was one who um, promised the radiance of the glory of God and who died in gloom and darkness. There is the one who promised beauty, who was himself disfigured, defaced, and mutilated to purchase that for us. There was the one who promised a new community that was cast out alone. There was the one that promised the end of idolatry that was himself sacrificed to our idols. There was the one who would gather in all whose flock was scattered. There was the one who dignifies work, whose work was cut short. There was the one who promised goodwill and acceptance and suffered nothing but malice and wrath. So motivated was he to make sure that we would know that this hope is powerful and certain and sure. And this is what he said right before he went to the cross. Remember, John 14 is the beginning of the passion he says this to his, his friends. He said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And if it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Father, um, I pray that you'd help us to see that allegiance to the great city is part of the gospel realized in our lives, that that great city will be the gospel realized for eternity, that, that we can't live the gospel in our whole lives without a doctrine of heaven, and that we shouldn't, and that it's undesirable. Help us to believe boldly in it. Help us to come out of the stupor of being underground so many years and believe in the promises and in the pictures you paint to give us a start of knowing what it will be like when we don't live in a creation under curse and groan. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and help us, help us to believe the one who said, if it were not so, I would have told you. To pray in his name, amen.